There he is. The Craig himself. Yeah. Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba in the news. Scoop Obsessed episode 467 is recorded live October 15th, 2020. Welcome back to Scoop Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where we can no longer call it summer. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well. I'm glad to be here, and uh, we've got a nice little audience tonight, so yeah. we're all primed for the show tonight. Yeah, it's getting dark earlier. It drives everybody in, and what else are you going to do other than listening to a dive podcast? I mean, everything night dive. else with night dive. That, well, that's the, a night dive. <laughs> a little sub- suggestion there. I'd I'd love to have a nice dive. Nice night dive. Yeah, so uh, thank you, everybody in the chat room. We have Dave and Derek and Karen have shown up, and a few others will, I'm sure, trickle in here as we get to going. Uh, for those who have been listening to the podcast, you know, sometimes the best things to do is to jump on into the chat room, and uh, they, I think they have some better conversations than than we do. Oh, tell me oh. that's not true. Come on. Uh, it, it can't be. It can't happen. So let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. We'll get that out of the way. First article up is scuba divers diving across the U.S. to help families find their missing loved ones. And there are many organizations that are doing that. And it's it's nice to see some like this one that are. Uh, a specialty diving team has been traveling across the country helping families whose loved ones are missing. Sam Jin and Jarek Lezak diving in a drive. I said diving. Driving around in an RV, hauling their gear in a trailer, they detail their adventures on social media. We're adventurers with purpose. We're traveling the U.S. trying to help as many families find their loved ones as we can, said Jin. Jin and uh, Lezak specialize in water operations. If there's a chance the body of a missing person may be in the river or lake, they'll try to find it. They arrived in Georgia this week to help look for Natalie Jones, a mom from Heard County who's been missing since July. Well, they were searching ponds for the second day in a row, someone discovered Joan's pink car on the side of the road with her body inside. Shortly after the car was found, Jin said it's a very small town. Not sure if us being here is a coincidence or the fact that us being here stirred up some motion, somebody, and they just dumped it. Days early, the family in North Carolina teen finally found had answers after the divers found his car in the river. Nicholas Allen had been missing for eight months. Jin and Lezak. Find about missing person cases through the subscriptions on YouTube and the followers on Facebook. We get about 18 views, a, 18 million views a month from YouTube and Facebook. With that, anything water-related with a vehicle or missing person, we hear about it. The team stopped at the Chattahoochee River in Fulton County on Friday after one of their viewers told them their car may be in the river. They didn't find the car, but they did come up with a dozen phones and some guns. We may have solved a couple of crimes anyway. No human remains but we did end up with three guns, a number of burner phones, a laptop, and a purse. It was a nice find, but the true mission of helping families to find out what happened to their loved ones 
your form of super close bond with super close relationships. We stay in contact well after we've succeeded in our mission. They love us. We love them, said Jin. Jin and Lizak have spent six more planned recovery stops before heading home to Oregon. One stop is in Kansas for a missing elderly couple. The diver, divers never charge their families a penny. They say they do it because if they were in their situation, they'd want someone to help them. Well, that is a lot like what we already have here. Uh, Mr. Schultz is ahead of it, which is the Great Lakes Search and Recovery. Uh, there's a lot more than just going out to look for somebody like that. Generally, cold cases are easier to find because the local police and what have you have already given up. And that's also where Jim comes in. He'll work with the authorities as much as they will let him. And after a couple of days, if there is no recovery, they don't have the funding to continue. Mm -hmm. And that's where Jim and company will step in and try to uh, help bring yeah. some kind of relief to the family, especially if the individual can be recovered. Yeah, because the counties around here, well, they're, they've got a lot of people. They don't have that much extra staff. Nobody staffs a department or organization just with extra people. And, uh, you know, at, at first when there's still a chance that somebody may be found alive or there, you know, somebody might be hopeful, uh, there's more time devoted to it. But after a couple days, two or three days, which can be remarkably short in a search, that department needs to get some, you know, those, that staff onto something more productive. When, when you have a diver in the water, especially at a, with a government agency, it's just not the diver. It's all the support people that go along with it. Right. You know, just, just, just to drop a camera in the water could take a team of five or six. And then many of them have normal responsibilities. You know, they're, they're dive teams, which are made of a variety of officers and sometimes uh, fire department personnel. And uh, while they're doing that, their, their jobs are not being done. So they're, they're going to get called back uh, after a not too long amount of time. And that's where the search and recovery group comes in. And once they have confidence in these groups and you get on the inside, then you be the, the sooner uh, we can be brought in to aid, then uh, the better chance. But it still comes down to money, even though even, you know, Ken or the group does not charge, mm -hmm. there's still expenses involved. And as you know, with the uh, Great Lakes group, we go out and we do other jobs that are not necessarily looking for people, but are generally water-related mm -hmm. to earn money to be able to subsidize going out whenever other people yeah. need us. Yeah, you, 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 we've, you've got gear, you've got uh, fuel for the boat, um, you know, air for the tanks, time, food. people, food. food. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, well, it's accolades to them, and hopefully. There are 18 million people who are subscribing. They get funding from that that'll help provide them with uh, necessarily funds to get out, travel, and help these other people. Yeah, they, it wasn't really clear. Is this somebody? Are they just taking a vacation, and they go from one side of the country to the other, and then they do this a few times of the year, or is this like a full-time activity they're doing? I really couldn't tell with the with that. I read, you know, I read through it with you, and I couldn't determine yeah. whether or not that was 
yeah. what they actually do. I know looking at the pictures, it's like, well, pretty much everything they've got is what we use. And that Zodiac is a wonderful tool. Yeah. That, and you can see the down, see how they've got their uh, sonar and their 360 finder mounted yeah. parallel. Yeah. That's a really nice setup. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, yeah they, they've refined their approach and that yeah. helps them out. And sometimes it just takes somebody to go look. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure that's the case of cars is that uh, a local jurisdiction, if they're not working on active case, they're just not arbitrarily going to go out there and pull out a car. But if you go down and find something, yeah, that it's can amazing. be something else. It's amazing how many times when they're out doing their um, training, they run into a car they hadn't seen or something. Yeah. It, it's amazing how often that does happen. Yeah. Well, kudos to them. And hopefully they get enough support that they can continue to do such. And how about this? You know, a little bit of boom. A huge World War II tall boy bomb explodes in the canal in Poland. The bomb was dropped uh, by Britain during World War II and has exploded after being discovered in the canal in Poland. The tall boy was also known as the earthquake bomb. It weighed 12,000 pounds when it was dropped by the Royal Air Force during the final months of the war. The bomb is the biggest ever found in Poland is believed to have been used in a raid on the German ship Lutzow. The Polish Navy attempted to defuse it on Tuesday by deflagration, a method that involves heating an explosive until it burns rather than detonating it, a spokesman for the Polish Ministry of Defense told uh, CNN. But the bomb exploded in the canal near the port city of, uh, call that Schweinjuice, sending up a huge plume of water. The operation to remove the bomb began on Monday when the Navy began moving residents and sent divers to assess it. The AFP news agency reported about 750 residents were evacuated from the area. Ministry spokesman told CNN that no injuries or damages reported, adding every step of the operation was under control. The Nazi-occupied Poland suffered repeated bombing from Allies planes during the World War II, leaving many cities devastated. The RAF sent several Lancaster bombers to the so-called Dambuster Squadron to drop 12 tall boys on the Letzau in April 1945, but one failed to detonate. I'm always curious of how and when did they suddenly realize where it was at and how long did they take to decide to do something with it? And I'm looking at the pictorial here or the picture of it exploding and I can see having people in the area, you know, removed, but 750 people, I don't see any big buildings or anything. Yeah. Um, there, there seems to be a lot of fairly modern infrastructure around there. You have, yeah. uh, some pretty hardened, uh, seawalls on one side. Uh, it looks like two rivers come together at this point. Well, on the or right is, hand is, side, it looks like railroad tracks leading to a wharf where you would onload yeah. or offload commerce. Yeah. Then you've got the major artery bridge off to the left. And I'm not sure what that outcropping is. That uh, looks like a seawall. It goes all the way out with a buoy on it for the light. Yeah, that, yeah that's what I was wondering is, is how close is this to the coast? Are we seeing? In the background. Out, out in the in background. The background is a yes. coast. Yeah. Okay. So this is kind of a, uh, 
what would be kind of delta lands that have built up over time. Right, because you'd have brought this in, you've got the land, you can have your sub pens or whatever you want, then they just go down the river until they get out into the ocean. Could that, uh, what we're seeing there, uh, it's, it's a little small. I was going to say maybe it was like how in St. Joe they used to have the rail pier where mm -hmm. the boats would dock up to. Yeah. Um, either that or there's some structures there that they're trying to keep people from hitting, and that's why there's a, a yeah. buoy and a light out. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, how how long did they know about it? And they, I've, I reread the article several times and I couldn't determine, did they intentionally blow it up or was this in the process of heating it up and detonated? That's my understanding. And in the process, yeah. it detonated. So they're hoping it wouldn't detonate, but it did. But, you know, either way, I mean, you try to do it the safest way possible, but you, you evacuate, you have a safe area. And then if it goes, it goes. I, I much prefer this than them saying, oh, it's too dangerous for us to do with it anything with don't touch it <laughs> well we've read quite a few reports of that time of uh, you know a large weapon like that or a ship that's sunk full of munitions that yeah. is now in a populated area and they didn't do anything for 40 years but now that people have gotten closer to it if it does detonate there's a lot more issues than had they done something 40 years ago Oh, right. And it's, you know, something that's decaying and half rusted out. A lot more unknowns and instability there. The Ag Agricultural Ministry warns against using scuba and diving compressors for fishing. Uh, this is out of, uh, is that Jam Jamaica? It says Jamaica WI, but is there Jamaica, Wisconsin? That's, or is that Jamaica, Jamaica? I don't think it's Jamaica, Wisconsin. Well, why would it say WI? That's weird. About us. So, uh, dun, 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 dun. company was established in 1834. Well, as soon as you say the ministry, I don't think you have a ministry in Wisconsin. <laughs> well, not, not the one we're, that we'd be thinking of. The correct. Just put an address on here, darn it. As I'm going through, I got 800 numbers. I can get everything else. I still enjoyed it, though. They're saying that diving as a method to fish is not illegal if it's done between 5 a.m. and 6 p.m. by licensed fishers. Then they talk about what the use of scuba and air compressors mm -hmm. called hookah for fishing is not allowed. So when they say diving as a method, I wonder if they mean free diving. Because here they say the use of scuba and air compressors is not allowed, so they must be talking free diving. It says you know, the, a spear gun. the agricultural ministry notes that their use is only allowed for specific industrial-based commercial fisheries on the Pedro Bank. The license of fishing vessels must explicitly state if a fisher is authorized to use scuba or hookah. Otherwise, their use while fishing is contrary to the conditions of the fishing license and is thus illegal. So to be a commercial fishing organization, you have to have a license. And if you don't tell them you're going to do it, then you're not allowed to do it. So what I'm guessing is there are people getting licenses. And then because they hear that hooker or scuba is efficient, they're doing that. The ministry says it has some 
has for some time expressed concern about the unsafe diving practices of many fishers, and given the use of scuba and hooker gear requires knowledge and expertise in the fundamentals of sport and commercial diving, with increasing illegal use of scuba and hookah gear on fishing vessels and the resulting increase in fatal diving accidents, it says the authority is to undertake a review of the terms of fishing licenses with a view of greater regulation over the use of this type of equipment in fishing. In the interim, fishers are being encouraged to seek training and ensure best practices while engage a profession likelihood of fishing. So they're a little contradictory there. They're saying you're doing it illegally if you don't have a license, but then they're going to make it more illegal, you know, which is what they're implying by saying there's going to be additional scrutiny. Yeah, th this kind of comes down to something we see here a lot is you make something illegal, you don't enforce the rules, and then because it's still a problem, you just double down on it and go, now I really mean it this time. Double, double probation. Yeah, daddy told you. <laughs> you can't do it. So, yeah, but we always advise somebody to get proper training. And, of course, that photo there is, is, is that his, uh, he's got stuff dangling. So it doesn't really, that doesn't scream he's trained. Of course, it's probably a file photo. It's probably a tourist. <laughs> Except he's too also, skinny. For you me. know, that looks like a uh, spear gun, and he's getting ready to load it with a spear. Oh, so he's got the spear gun between his legs, which is kind of an unfortunate spot there. Yeah, and it also right. looks like he is freediving. So that yeah. must be what they were talking about initially. You can spearfish like this guy is doing. But if you're using the hook and stuff, that's unfair advantage. It could be. Well, if you're boaters and your guys can only do this way, and I can use a scuba tank, I sure got the advantage. Oh, certainly. I can stay down as long as I want. I can, or as long as I got air, I can hang around. And so then this next one, it says, after missing for 100 years, eight species of freshwater mussels have been found in the Kiski. Recent scuba survey in the Kiski River, the first in more than 110 years in which was once a dead river, turned up eight species of freshwater mussels, surprising researchers. For more than a century, the river was sullied by large amounts of nitrous damage from coal mining and other industrial pollution. The curator of the invertebrate zoology at Carnegie Mellon A.E. Ortman in 1909 declared freshwater life in the Kiski River was extinct. Now playing the dark emerald waters of the Kiski River in a clear day, you can see the bottom studded with rocks, and if you look closely, freshwater mussels. That is the case if you're on the dive team of the Western Pennsylvania Conservatory or Conservancy. In September, the team conducted a series of surveys on the Kiski. The Tribune Review accompanied researchers documenting the underwater discoveries in clear waters captured for the first time with high-quality optics. The divers use their bare hand to feel the riverbeds, pluck out the mussels, and then they may spot one after developing an eye for them. We call them muscle visions, said Elisa Texler, property manager and watershed scientist with the Western Pennsylvania Conservatory. Trexler apparently has a gift, as she easily found a muscle known as a spike while walking along the Kiski before she dove in the deeper water. The riverwork is rough, literally, as the researchers crawl along the riverbed. They scrape the bottom so much to preserve his wetsuit 
Eric Chapman, lead diver the, and director of the aquatic science at Western Pennsylvania Conservatory, wears a pair of roomy thrift store Cabela jeans blown out knees over his dive suit. To survey, they throw the chain across the river to use as a grid so they can sample sections of the river scientifically. The divers submerge with empty mesh bags and a special underwater slate and pen. During the September surveys, they found freshwater mussels haven't been observed for more than a century, including common species with names such as spike, plain pocketbook, pocketbook, fat bucket, fragile paper shell, pink heel splitter, black sand shell, and maple leaf. The finding is that many species of mussels in the Kiski at various ages is testament to resiliency of the freshwater system, and given time, they can recover, Chapman said. Some of the mussels found in Kiski dives are, were very young. Some are at least 10 years old, maybe more than 20 years old, indicating the recovery of these pollution-intolerant mussels was underway well before anyone knew about it. The mussels are indicators of long-term improvement, so much, uh, more so than the presence of fish. If there's bad water, fish can swim away. Mussels can't. The good news for the Kiski, said Rick Spear, aquatic biologist, supervisor for Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection, Southwest Regional Office. There were clues the rebounding river, other than increasing robust fish population, which have been reported extensively over the past two decades. Reports of hellbender salamander caught by an angler in Kiski in 2018 and the freshwater mussel during the litter cleanup of 2017 got the interest of the conservancy. The nonprofit secured funding from the Calcum Foundation to take a deeper dive in the Kiski and other impaired waterways to find signs of life. Acid drainage from abandoned coal mines remains a major source of impairment for rivers, Spear said. Department of Environmental Protection and other agencies and organizations continue to share their data to try and accelerate recovery of the rivers. This and other recent muscle reports in other previously polluted waterways in the region, no others were declared dead as a Kiski was, could mean mussels live in numbers and waterways where people weren't looking for them. That's why our agency and our partners keep looking for mussels, said Nevin Welt, a micro what's that? Malacon colonologist? No, no N in there. Non-game biologist, Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commission. PFBC staff look for mussels as part of the agency's unassessed water program. With water quality improvements since the Clean Water Act making it safer, safer to survey some of these areas, we still make new discoveries about how well or not some streams have recovered, Walt said. The Kiski is blessed with having an amazing Allegheny River to flow into. The Allegheny River Pool 4 and the confluence of these two rivers harbor state and federal endangered species, state endangered species, rare specimens, and some intact rivering environments that would be reminiscent of the environmental during the era before locks and dams. The Western Pennsylvania Conservative will continue to survey next year in the Kiski and elsewhere. How do you like that? They say the river was so polluted it was that they, they it was too dangerous for them to dive in. Well, we've heard about that on a lot of rivers, including the St. Joe. That's also why the uh, Department of Natural Resources here in Michigan is really encouraging all people, both divers, non-divers, people who like to walk the, the, the woods and forests plus the riverbeds or riversides to um, take some of their classes identifying invasive species so they can just 
use the app on the phone, report it. It automatically gives them the GPS location. And if you've yeah. got hundreds of people doing that, they don't have to be trained because they're saying, hey, here's a picture. Click. It automatically feeds it into their system. And they're getting a lot more data than they could ever do on their own and their funding. Yeah, the, the citizen science programs, I think, are great. Uh, people are looking for excuses to get out in nature and have a little bit of exercise. And if you can feel productive while you're doing it, yeah, Absolutely. That's just, uh, yeah. So look forward and support this. Uh, and I think the re and and they kind of indicated in the article the reason they hadn't found it is because they hadn't looked. Yeah, you know, if you've got twenty year old muscles in there, then uh, they've been they've been going for a little bit. Well, it's like um, I use Jim again for an example. One of the tasks he had, I think it was last year, was a lot of places where they are doing shoreline protection and or bridges or road repair, uh, before they can disturb the bottom in those areas, they have to be surveyed for just that, mussels and other items. So yeah. they went down, they found some. So they had Jim take them out and relocate them downstream. It almost seems like you'd want to be upstream, wouldn't it? <laughs> Well, depend on the flow rate, and if you've got construction, I, I don't know. I just know they they moved them from the location in which they found them. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I yep. That's a it's a good thing to do. Yeah. And then in the chat room, they're asking how long do muscles live for, and then Google said ten to forty years, and it's like wow. That, that's a when, when we were out there looking at our local lakes and uh, rivers, the key items I'm always looking for is Clodophora, crayfish, and clams. They give you one hell of a good indication of the health of the lake. Yeah. And not to mention, you already can tell that when you hit like uh, L&E Bay, when you take a pride and you go down four foot before you start hitting semi-solid, it gives you an idea of what kind of collection you've got in that area, and you're not having any clams because they can't live that far down. You know, in all that impact yeah. material. Well, um, do you th do you think that's why we're seeing more clams in the river there in Niles? Is because the uh, current keeps that silt under control, so they have a good bedding material to nest in. This last last two years we've had so much floodwaters it has really cleaned the bottom pretty darn good mm -hmm. uh, i don't know if you saw that one picture i took um just going straight across from Merrimont, straight across to the other side uh, you'll find a big interesting boat-ish configuration coming back over i hit a section that had i bet hundred thousand dead clamshells meaning i got was Heavy gravel or heavy rocks, as you get back towards the middle, then you got gravel. Then you got to sand. A little past the sand, there was one hole probably 20 foot wide, and as far as I could see, up and down, upstream, downstream, of nothing but dead shells. Then got more to the left. That's when the sediment started picking back up. And then when you got to the sidewall, back to the wall on the Merrimont side, you got two and a half feet of silt and muck. So that gives you an interesting variation of where the clam's going to be, but why they had that whole stretch in the middle of dead ones, I have not a clue. Well, and the thing is, are how long have they been dead? Were those 
yeah. shells that had died 40 years ago or those shells that died in the last year? It'd be interesting right. to know. And did not know. Because yeah. one, I can't bring them up because that's illegal. Yep. Um, and I hadn't seen many clams until the last three or four years in the river. There's the first few years I was diving the river. If you found a, a shell, it was something was dead. Yeah. Well, I'm curious because a couple of people have reported the last couple of weeks of seeing red spotted clawed crayfish. And there's one invasive species that is red and spotted, but we need a sample before we can actually say, darn, we have them here. Hmm. So take your, if your goodie bag or you have a good bag, catch one. Bring it up. Let's take a picture and send it in. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be a good thing to do. Yeah. And uh, maybe it, it would be worth, I mean, is this something where we could contact somebody and they'd offer to do a course, even if it was remote? You know, because we're in the river an awful lot. Uh, maybe we they could tell us what we should be looking for, or should we document? I mean, is there is there a way of you know when we're grubbing? Oh yeah, say, there's that there's that app that I told yeah, you about. Yeah, get but, that I on mean, your phone. But is there something where we could help them, or you you where they say, okay, take a thirty foot section of river from one shore to the other. And then do this for us, you know, count this, look for that, take those photos. I did that anyway, as uh, part of the club years ago. We used to do it on the North and South Pier. We'd go through, measure the invasive species coming in, what the uh, saturation point, not saturation point, but if we had a square meter and you make, you know, a PVC pipe, put it down and then count. Mm -hmm. How many goby did you have in that square meter? More than I can count, that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah. I'd take pictures. Um, I got some interesting video that if you look through the years, you can see the evolution of the invasive species when it came and when it went away. Mm -hmm. And and that, that is kind of interesting as we've been seeing the invasive species. It seems like when they first come in, they spike really high. And then at some point there comes an equilibrium, which is, I think, what we're seeing with the gobies. Right. Now, actually, the reason part of the gobies are going away is when you got nothing else to eat, you're going to adapt. Yeah. And the fish have a certain varieties of fish have adapted and they eat gobies now. Yeah. You used to could go down there by the docks or by the piers. And if those guys had teeth, I would not be diving there. Because, <laughs> Gobi you know, piranha. I mean, you, you were talking hundreds per square meter. Oh, yeah. Well, I can remember going in a wreck where it would be clear. We'd come down, they'd all scatter, and then you'd have a no six way. inch of a cloud on the bottom. Yep. yep. But uh, this year alone is totally, totally different. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's finally turned a corner and it's, uh, and I think the visibility has improved. I don't know if that's directly the reason or if there's other things, but even out in the wrecks, we've had, yeah, the, well, the, the quaggas have been there. Even, even they were there. Were they there before the gobies? Oh, you had the zebra first. Yeah. Then you had the invasion of the red spiny. Then you've got the gobies. And now you got the quaggas came in and took over from the zebra. Yeah. Yeah, it's but funny. They, the one invasive has been out has been outpaced by another. Honestly, so they did more in four years than the other one did in 15. I mean, you could walk from Michigan to Wisconsin on zebra mussels, a quagga <laughs> mussel. And that's no lie. I mean, they were finding them at 850 feet, yeah. just the beds of them. 
Yeah, because zebras never went that deep, did they? No. Well, this next one, this is this is an article that you turned me on to, which was the, uh, or or before we do this one, should we talk about it? And I don't, I didn't know how to share it, but you did share it with me, which was two photos uh, of Antarctica of the same spot about 100 years apart. Yeah. Well, can you post that on, on the chat? At least we the people put, there are. I think we can put in the chat. Let me see. Uh, I'd have to refine them myself. No, I, I think I, I think I've got it here. I'm going to oh, my email as I'm as I'm stalling because I don't have that open right now. But it, hang it, on, it was, I got it. You got it. You got to yeah, throw them in there. It. Yeah. Okay, so here they go. At least I think I did. Yeah. Yep. There it is. So hundred years uh, apart. Hundred three years. So for for those in the podcast listening online, you you're you're missing out here. It's a but uh in the top one, imagine like uh snow cliffs. You know, like we we have the the bluffs along Lake Michigan and it's hard to tell perspective because you're you're a ways away. And then in the distance you see some peaks. And then the current this year's photo is you can't see really any I mean, there might, there might be a little glacier running down, but nothing near what it was before, and you can see the whole mountain. That's freaking amazing. Yeah, that, that is a striking photo. What I'd like to see is it, what, where this, I mean, of course, it's, it's probably not possible, but if you, I'd like to see a photo the same time of every year over those 100 years. Yeah. Yeah, Derek in the chat room saying there's a Amazon, a Netflix documentary called Chasing Ice that may have that. So amazing how much some stuff has changed. But then again, climate has changed for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Right. I mean, again, we are saying the lake level is blah, blah, blah. Okay, 200 years. But 10,000 years ago, this was a tropical ocean. Yeah. We, and we, we, we weren't here to do anything about that. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I wasn't laying anything saying who was to blame on just the, just what the, the differences in its documentation. Uh, that's a whole nother discussion of how much is preventable, how much is human caused, how much, you know, is any of it, if you're saying it's human caused, is any of that reversible? Uh, and I think a lot of times we highlight the wrong items. You know, I think less pollution is better, but then agreeing on what pollution is can be somewhat of a challenge. Um, I, I think we we want to create headlines that motivate people to do things, and then you've got other people who are trying to predict what your motivation reaction is to profit from it. So. I don't know. All I know is that they did another survey of the bottoms and some of the deepest parts of the ocean. And the amount of bio, biodegradable or plastic that has been degraded, they're finding per, per meter is an amazing amount, even on the bottom of the deepest parts of the ocean. We have done a wonderful job of polluting the ocean that's all there is to it i mean that's what we did 
we still do. A lot of trash we used to put on barges, take it out so many miles and dump it. Yeah, there there was a saying in uh, environmental sciences, dilution is the solution. Pollution. Yeah, you just uh, throw it out there and you you let it go away. And when you've got uh, bottoms that would build up at a rate of, you know, half an inch a century, and now you've, you know, we're seeing that we've added significantly more in some spots. Um, yeah. So it, it's almost like a distraction. It's like the, the things we should be cutting back on pollution is being influenced by other things that we may not be able to control. Yeah. It's, it's, it's called we need money. Yeah. And, you know, prevention sometimes is, is, is better than the cleanup. Yeah. Uh, so this is a website. Was it Frank Godio? dot org yeah and uh i don't see a date on it but he's talking about the thonus was it hercilion um it's a uh the the egyptian and greek names of the city is a city but lost between legend and reality before the foundation of alexandria in 331 bc the city knew glorious times as the a port of entry to Egypt for all ships coming from the Greek world. It uh, had also religious importance because the Temple of Amun, which played an important role in the rites associated with the dynasty continue, continuity. The city was founded probably around the 8th century BC, underwent diverse natural catastrophes, and finally sunk entirely in the depths of the Mediterranean at the 8th century AD. Prior to its discovery in 2000 by European Institute of Underwater Archaeology, IEASM, directed by Frank Godio, no trace of the Thonus Herculean had been found. Its name was almost raised from memory of mankind, only preserved in ancient classic texts and rare inscriptions found on land by archaeologists. The Greek historian Herodotus 5th century BC tells us of a great temple that was built there with a famous hero Hercules first set foot in Egypt. Uh, he also reported that Helen visits to Herculean over her lover Paris before the Trojan War. More than four centuries after Herodotus' visit to Egypt, the geographer Strabo observed the city in Herculean, which possessed the temple of Hercules and located straight to the east of Canopus at the mouth of the Canopic branch of the River Nile. Uh, discovery with unique survey-based approach that utilized the most sophisticated technical equipment, Frank Godio and his team, in cooperation with the Egyptian Supreme Council of Antiquities, were able to locate, map, and evacuate, evacuate, ev- <laughs> excavate parts of the city, uh, which lies 6.5 kilometers off today's coastline that can I, is a can i jump into this for a second yes frank i'm gonna call him frank he's an interesting guy because he's not as old as i am uh he's a french underwater archaeologist who and this was discovered in 2000 the city of that i can't pronounce it but you just did and yeah. that, they referenced here that it was the uh, seven kilometers off the egyptian shore in Ankara bay uh, he also uh-huh. led the excavation of the sites in eastern Canopolis, uh, the ancient harbor of Alexander, 
He's also excavated ships in the waters of the Philippines, specifically there, the Spanish galleon San Diego. Uh, it's funny that he got his degrees originally in mathematics and statistics and worked in the <laughs> Swedish administrative economic section in Paris. Yeah, uh, you know, he advised the government, blah, blah, for 15 years. In the 80s, he said, ah, the heck with this, I'm going to do something different. And then he became an underwater archaeologist. And he founded the Institute of European Archaeology, uh, Sos Marine, in Paris in 1987. And he has been working his butt off, but in his work of detecting and covering ancient shipwrecks and searching for remains of sunken cities, uh, he developed that systematic approach to underwater archaeology. He has found and excavated over a dozen sunken ships that had significant historic importance alone. And most of them had been on the sea bottom for hundreds of years, uh, including, uh, what is it, junks dating from the 11th to 15th century, the Spanish galleon San Diego we mentioned, and the San Jose. He also discovered Napoleon Bonaparte's flagship, the Orient, uh, two Eastern East Indian the Griffin, 8, uh, 1761, a different Griffin than Lake Michigan. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Royal Captain, which was lost in 1773. So he is a strict adherent to the archaeological standards during the excavation and the, the exploration and then the excavation. And he, he definitely cooperates and closely cooperates with the national and local authorities when they're doing this excavation and preservation. So he's quite a character, and he has done one hell of a lot of work. Yeah. Well, and the photos in this are absolutely amazing. Oh, uh, the ones I didn't put up. One, oh, if I can, I'm going to have to look for that one. It, it'll take your breath away. Yeah. So if I can relocate what I had before. Yeah, because there's one where he, they're lifting. Yeah, and I'm not seeing it here. Tablet. In these the tablet, right? Did I send that? I don't. I mean, I've seen one here of a tablet, but there's one where there was a statue laying on the ground and it was absolutely huge. And then they were pick, picking it up. In fact, I think I see a colossal statue of red granite, 5.4 meters representing happy God of the Nile's uh, flood and symbol of abundance and fertility decorating the temple of Hercleon. Never before it was such a huge statue of happy or any other God discovered in Egypt which indicates Happy's importance in the Canopic Branch, the largest, most important river, the Niles Delta. Uh, that item I just posted is fantastic. Let me take a look, see what you posted here. Yep. I did uh, one below and then when they brought it up. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, the photos you have above, that's the one of the Happy. Yeah. Uh, uh, but what, what still I'm trying to get my mind around is that how far this is off coast? Yeah, uh, seven kilometers. Because, I mean, you can see the port of Alexandria, which is this is what is off. So even Alexandria was known in antiquity as a port. I mean, it had the uh, great lighthouse. So was there, I mean, how could there be a city that far out from that point? Well, Alexander is what, was what three thirty BC. How yeah. long ago? How many thousand years ago is that? Well, it's a little over what, 23, 2,400 years ago. Yep. 
Uh, and look what, I mean, and that's 3,000 years. 10,000 years is what we're now talking about up in Lake Michigan. You already know about that, right? The yes. artifacts found under the bridge when they're trying to do the gas yeah. tunnel. And they're, and they're claiming this is another, uh, like is over in Lake Huron. We're back in the pre, just as the, the Ice Age was going away, they had hunters and they yep. would circle stones and stuff over in Lake Huron, herd the antelope or whatever through it and then kill them. That's yeah. what they're trying to say. This is uh, on the mm -hmm. bottom of Lake Michigan between right. us and yeah. the other part, northern Michigan. Yeah, because Lake Michigan, uh, part of that was also the uh, that Lake Michigan and Lake Huron really weren't connected. Right, right. And and it wasn't until that it started to, uh, the waters from Lake Michigan started to trickle through that way that it started to erode a channel, and then that's what caused the connection. And I was reading an article today I never really thought about, but they were talking about when the massive weights of the glaciers melted, mm -hmm. the ground actually came back up. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it just boggles your mind how that will work, the dynamics of hydraulics. But again, we're talking only 10,000 years ago, people. Yeah, this is a, you know, what we see here in the Great Lakes is is, mo is relatively modern times on a historic scale. I mean, that's yes. just, yeah. you know, looking back at the Carl Sagan's uh, time, that's just a couple seconds yeah. uh, back there. And and you're right, because that was, you know, Taurus Lysenko, when he had found those uh, in the south end of Lake Michigan, those Forest. those trees. Right. Yeah, the forest, and that that was kind of all related because you had, uh, you know, glaciers weighed down on the the crust. I mean, it it actually forced it down, and as those glaciers meant uh, melted, then it relieved the pressure. And they've got studies where they've shown that stumps and and things are related to the, the change of the elevation as the crust started to uh, reduce its deformity from the weight. Amazing All stuff. interesting. Yep. Yeah, interesting stuff. So, and if it's underwater, we can claim it as divers. Uh, next article from the Kansas City Star, a small boat with a hidden message washes up 27 years after the launch, a Wisconsin woman says. A couple of Wisconsin stumbled upon a shipwreck in a small boat last week, a discovery nearly 30 years in the making. Lynn Bebo and her husband Mike were out in Wisconsin admiring the fall foliage and taking in the sunset when they found a path that led to remote uh, Apostle Island Beach on the shore of Lake Superior, Michigan Live reported. It was there when it happened upon a small wooden boat painted red and white and blue, Lynn wrote in a Facebook post. I noticed a little colored piece of wood buried in the sand about 20 feet from the water, Mike told uh, uh KBJR. I thought it might have been a net buoy or a net float that had broken loose in a commercial fisherman boat or something when I dug it out and it looked kind of washed off. I was really surprised and thought, this is really cool. Lynn posted photos of the shipwreck on Facebook along with images of the handwritten message at the bottom of the boat. It read, I am traveling to the ocean. Please put me back in the water. Will you send me information on your whereabouts to a Lakewood school room? 116 and 118, 5207 North Tisk, Duluth, Minnesota, 53304. Lynn did as a message requested, tossed the boat back in the water before contacting Lakewood Elementary School in Duluth, Minnesota, roughly 100 miles west of the beach, Michigan Live reported. 
After talking with school administrators, she learned that the boat had started its journey 27 years earlier after a teacher read the award-winning children's book, Paddle to the Sea, to her class, Lynn wrote. The 1941 book written by Hollings C. Hollings followed the journey of a paddle to a sea, a wooden figure in a small canoe carved by a young boy which travels through the Great Lakes and ultimately reaches the Atlantic Ocean. The boy writes a similar message in the boat before setting its sail. Teachers Bonnie Fritch and Brenda Schell each launched a wooden boat during a 1993 field trip to Brighton Beach just north of Duluth with her second grade classes. Brenda had a friend that made the boats and we had our class paint them. At the end of the year, we'd take a trip to Duluth to go to Enger Tower and all that we knew went to Brighton Beach to let the boats go with our class. It's not the first time the boats have been found. Fritch had someone stumbled upon the red and white and blue ships farther up shore about a year after it launched and put a second coat of varnish in the boat and relaunched it. I thought we wouldn't hear any more about it. Amazing, it's still out there. The Babos said they hope to recover will encourage people to venture off the beaten path. We like to just find remote places and just see what we discover, and this is by far the coolest discovery by far. What caught me in this article is I can remember, and it was about fifth grade when I was in school, and it must have been a movie or a, you know, it was a little short video, and I bet it was based on the book that they were, they're talking about here because it struck me at the time how cool it was, which it was this wooden boat, and somebody had poured lead. You know, They, they showed the fabrication of the boat and poured lead in the bottom, and then he carefully painted you know, if found, please put me back in the water. And, uh, for some reason, I think it's just my, my, my love for the water that's and boats that that stuck with me. And I, I find this art article fascinating. I've, I've always liked this where you, you put something, you know, the message in the bottle or message in the boat. Well, from that, aspect, let him go uh, from that aspect though. Uh, I have found two, one bottle one balloon. Mm -hmm. uh, that's back when I worked at Cook Plan in the 80s. We'd have patrol, beach patrol, and I came across a bottle. It had been launched in Wisconsin, and it was only like two and a half years old. But it had the address of the school, and we responded with it, which was still a lot of fun. And the same thing with a balloon. Had the, the tail on it, please let us know how far this has traveled. Mm-hmm. But it's still yeah. interesting to do that, and especially if people take the time and they find it to respond to them. Yeah, yeah. The the balloons. I think we've found a couple here just at on on my property. Uh, I think my wife and the kids had uh, messaged them back, uh, but they weren't. The balloons were fairly recent, like within the last year of when they were found. Um. And I think now they're discouraging the balloons. They're discouraging the balloons and even the uh, Japanese lanterns because I think yeah. everybody's afraid those. You know, in the last probably ten years, those have both been discouraged. But you know, the message in the bottle and the the boats and the water, I I just find interesting. It's just the you know, kind of the randomness, the connection. You know, when you pick something that up, the that you associate with somebody else who took the time to put it in you know, there's kind of the connectedness of all things i think we got one left 
Yep. Six masted ship lost in 1913 storm reappears in the outer banks after hurricane Teddy six masted ship lost a lot, uh, lost more than a century off the outer banks has reappeared and was at Accra Coke Island, according to the national park service, Cape Hatteras national seashore posted a video of October 9th showing the wooden bones of the schooner George W. Wells now exposed in the beach. It's typically crawling with tourists in the summer. Hurricane Teddy that came by this past week unearthed a shipwreck that you see here is pretty fitting. This is George W. Wells. It was sunk by a hurricane in 1913. Cape Hatteras National Seashore Ranger David Kent said in the video, it has been unearthed several times over the history out here in the Outer Banks. It is likely the wreck that is covered again with sand shortly, only to reappear in a few years. George W. Wells is one of at least three Outer Bank shipwrecks uncovered when Hurricane Teddy hit the coast with waves that were nearly 18 feet tall in September. The Metropolitan wreck in January 1878 reappeared in the beach in Corolla. The Graveyard and Atlantic Museum reported October 6th in that Facebook post. And a wreck believed the GAA Kohler sank in 1933, resurfaced between mile marker 25 and 27th, according to October 10th post in the Shipwrecks of the Outer Bank Facebook group. The 345-foot George W. Wells is the first six-masted schooner, and it meant its demise just 13 years after its maiden voyage, Kent said. 24 people, including two children, were rescued when it ran aground on September 3, 1913, according to National Carolina Shipwreck Blogspot.com. When discovered by lifesavers and men and women were clinging to the vessel's rigging, the site quoted the Washington Post saying, the wind was blowing 70 miles an hour and the rain fell in torrents. After several unsuccessful attempts, the lifesavers finally succeeded in reaching the schooner and all were taken off. The Diamond Shoals area of the Outer Banks is known as the Graveyard of the Atlantic due to the large number of shipwrecks there, Park Service says in the video. It is believed the first shipwreck of the English ship, the Tagger, in 1585, and the latest in the ocean pursuit, the fishing vessel ran aground in March and continues to sink into the beach at Bodie Island, the National Park Service reports. Over the years, we have failed to figure out exactly how many shipwrecks we have. The records aren't that complete, Kent said in the Park Service video reports, but it depends on your definition of what is the Outer Banks. There may be hundreds, if not thousands, of shipwrecks that have occurred here over the years. But six mass, that's a, quite a vessel there, a well, George W. Wells. In 1986, I went up to a trip, and I'm trying somewhere in up in New England, along the coast, and I hit a section of river where it went into the ocean and there was three six-mast schooners not schooners ships up onto the beach big signs around them said these are the last remaining remnants of the old six-mast blah 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 we're looking for donations so we can salvage them for history and you can tell where they went they were not salvaged and they deteriorated. Um, now that we came across this, I'm going to see if I can find that picture I took of them. It's like, it's so much easier to do that when they're on the freaking shore already <laughs> attacked than when you're trying to recapture them from out into, into the water. Yeah. Well, but it's looking, never important till they're gone. Right. Well, the, the thing here that it said, this was the first six mass schooner. Oh, so the Met, Let's see, where where was that? I'm trying to find that spot again. 
said the 345-foot George W. Wells is the first six-masted schooner. So, let's see, what year do they say that is? 1913. So 1913 is when it sank. Ran aground September 3rd, 1913. Six-masted schooner had been built. So the first six-masted schooner was built in 1900s. 1900 seems kind of late for a masted vessel, isn't it? Well, let's see. For 13 years, the George Wells plied the Atlantic Ocean between ports as far north as New England and as far south as Cuba. September 3rd, 1913, en route to Boston, Massachusetts from Florida. It was driven ashore by breakers off of Coke Island by hurricane force winds. Well, because I'm thinking that the 1800s, you had steamship. Yeah. So there had to have been some reason why somebody was investing in sailing vessels when steamships were available. So, it, you know, it had to either be, you know, less expensive to operate because you you have more labor, you know, steamship, you just have somebody shoveling the coal into it, you know, with a six masted sailing vessel, you have to have crew to go and run sails. And I'm trying to see the photo. I'm almost saying that probably is that it almost that's looks typical, like that's a typical six mass schooner of the variety I saw up mm-hmm. the New England way. Now, did that also have a, a auxiliary engine? That I do not know. Yeah, because I'm I'm trying to see. You know, he's holding the photo in a fo- in a picture, but it almost appears that that would that that may have had both, but I I don't know. Something to take a look in. I'm just, I wouldn't have thought 1913, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much thinking, you know, cause the late 1800s, you had, you know, motor vehicles starting. Well, it said the Wells was the first six mass schooner built. Image shows her after her 1900 launch at the HM beam yard wharf in Camden, Camden. Mm-hmm. So it's the first one and there were, there were more made. So there had to have been something specific that they liked. I mean, you, 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 don't, you don't have fuel costs, but you're making up for it with staffing. Speed, 16 Speed. knots, 18 miles an hour. Yeah, I mean, that is a pretty good clip. And maybe that's what they need to do. Maybe that's what drove the six. Well, um, some of them actually had uh, donkey steam engines to help raise and lower sails. Ah, maybe that's what I'm. I'm the steam engine was not used to power the ship. Yep, yep, that would make sense. Sail with a smaller crew of only eleven yeah. hands. Yeah, because if because uh, a steamship wouldn't have been going nearly at that speed, so it had, yeah, it would have been a at this age probably a side wheeler. Uh, so it had been puttering along, and you'd be hoping to get some sort of volume because uh. You know, you had the you know, military vessels. You had the uh, the USS Maine, you know, in, in 1898, which was you know coal and steam powered. Well, uh, Monitor that, Merrimack. Well, Monitor Merrimack. Now you now you're in the 1860s. Yep. Uh, so yeah, the, I mean, every everything happens. Technology moves. There's quite a bit of an overlap, and and I find this fascinating. So, but I'm sure the. Maybe our listeners do not. Let us know if you do. We'd love to hear. You know, yeah, we'd show like to at feedback. Scuba, 
yeah, we'd like to. You you want to hear us reminisce about vessels that we've never seen uh, operate in person or uh, or something else? We'd we'd certainly love to know. Um, we're on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash scuba obsessed on Twitter at scuba obsessed our website, www.scubaobsessed, which I need to desperately get on. Maybe with my day off tomorrow, I'll go and uh, do some work. It's probably vastly out of date. Get that up. Uh, but, but we appreciate support. If you, know, if you can, you know, only a five-star review on your platform of choice. If you are, have the ability and the funds and you're getting the value from the show, uh, click on over to our Patreon link from our website. And, uh, that would help us out. We're hitting that time of year where the, they're asking us for money again, which, uh, just seems to be the nature of everything. Seems like somebody's asking for. So that does it for scuba in the news. How has everybody been doing and getting in some diving? I haven't heard too much this week. I know we have one scheduled for Friday or for Saturday, uh, high noon dive at forest beach. For people who want to check out their dry suit, they may not have been put on or used for a while. So I know a couple of people will be out there checking out the cold water gear. So you said Forest Beach? Forest Beach in Coloma. Or Coloma. well, Port actually. Is it, so that's, is that Big Papa or Little Papa? That's Big Papa. Big Papa, Forest Beach. I'm going to have Beach. to look that up. I don't I know. I've... High noon, high noon. Okay, I gotta, I gotta check my schedule and see what's going on. I think my wife asked me what I was doing. Oh, I know what I've, yeah, I know what she's doing. She's heading the casino. <laughs> yeah, you know, nothing quite as COVID safe as the casino. I, I find this funny because you know her, her family is all healthcare workers, and and when this whole pandemic started, yeah, you know, they were they were on. I mean. It's like one healthcare worker's guilting the other because, you know, they, they made an extra trip to the gas station. And then I find out, you know, you know, here we are in the last month and they're all back to their trips to casinos. So, oh, well, hopefully this all works out. I'm, st- I'm <laughs> who knows anymore. So high noon. Yep. Yep. Oh, you want to get the best light penetration we can get. Oh yeah. Yeah. And get you, something you know, that- you start out with the sandy bottom. You got the dock to uh, help stash your gear on. If you got issues, you can try it. You know, six foot. You come up, down, check your balance, your water, your weights, and once you're comfortable, going out to the drop off and go down to 20 feet or so. Yeah, I think the last time I wore my dry suit was out there in Lake Michigan. So, uh, yeah, it's probably probably time to check out, make sure it still works. So do you have a dive safety story this week? Well, I, I have an interesting one. The last couple of weeks, we've been talking about, you know, dive preparation, dive planning. Uh, don't take shortcuts. How stretching out the safety limit basically invalidates the limit. Well, let's talk about another one. It's called The Tragic and Unnecessary Death of Brian Bungie. Now, Conventional open-circuit scuba is sold as not being rocket science. Patty and its like, now and the others, have made it available to most, almost everybody. Scuba is fun. It's, it is for all the family. Once you've grasped 
Boyle's Law and the repercussions of breathing compressed gas underwater, it's only a matter of gaining the confidence to do things underwater. Well, that is true if you confine yourself to open water scuba, depth in benign water conditions, and even then though, of course, mistakes can be made. Now, scuba diving out in the ocean can introduce complications and an understanding of seamanship is required. It's, it is also all about your managing your air supply because if it stops, you can't breathe. You can't breathe, you die. Decompression requirements or the limits of no stop diving can easily be taken care of by observing your diving computer and your tank pressure and time. Even when you want to go deeper than conventional diving depth using different mixed gases, some of which might be anoxic, in the shallows, it's, it's not hard to understand scuba diving. In water confidence, plus the ability to put the regulator, the right regulator in your mouth at the appropriate depth, that's all that's required. Now, of course, mistakes can be, can be made. The wrong regulator with the wrong gas mix can be selected but it takes a conscious, if wrong, decision to do that. Scuba diving without a visible surface adds to the provision that you must be confident and not panic when unexpected circumstances arrive. Cave systems and closed wrecks without direct access to the surface and fresh air is no place for beginners. That is another thing that does not take much to understand. Whether we ignore it or not, well, Darwin has shown otherwise. And that is why we have a culture of having fun, enjoying ourselves when learning to scuba dive. This is imparted by the instructors who make sure it's fun. They really want you to have a good time. Generally speaking, training in open circuit scuba is delivered in a lighthearted and somewhat casual manner. But then there's closed circuit or CCR diving. Now, I met Buzz Aldrin, and everybody knows him former astronaut, engineer, fighter pilot, pilot of the Gemini uh, 12 mission, and him and Neil Armstrong, first two humans to land on the moon. He was at a demo, DEMA show. He was the guest at the booth of Silent Diving, one of the leading suppliers of closed circuit rebreathers. So it's not surprising that the ex-astronaut is a competent CCR diver. There's a lot in common with breathing from a system in the inhospitable vacuum of space and breathing from a closed circuit system in the inhospitable, inhospitable environment that is water. Now, CCR diving is different from open circuit scuba in that you always breathe, but you need to be confident in what you're actually breathing. I just heard a noise, so is our friend still online with us? Well, let's see if Craig abandoned us. No, correct. Okay. But you need to be confident in what you're breathing. Now, closed circuit rebreathers recirculate the gas, either nitrox or mixed gas with added helium, in the system and your lungs so that the only gas you use is in the oxygen you metabolize. And that's surprisingly little. The gas is moved around in a loop between the user's lungs and the CCR unit. In the process, oxygen is added, whether automatically or manually, to make up the difference in what is used. And the waste product of metabolism, carbon dioxide, removed by a chemical scrubber that is packed by the user. Now, hypoxia, caused by a shortfall in oxygen, has one symptom underwater. 
generally death. Hypercapnia, the poisoning caused by an excess of carbon dioxide in the breathing loop, result in breathlessness, confusion, errors of judgment, very soon followed by death underwater. I should say very often followed by death underwater. Now, how often we're told you might die during open circuit scuba training? I doubt the, other, the, the subject really ever comes up because statistically, the chance of diving on scuba are very remote indeed. Not so much with CCR. Now, with few exceptions, divers rotate over the CCR after first learning conventional scuba techniques. Problem arises when scuba instructors gravitate towards CCR instruction from conventional scuba instruction. Now, conventional scuba is not really rocket science. CCR diving, eh, there's no place for the cavalier attitudes that some scuba instructors in CCR training have. Which brings us to the tragic story of Brian Bungie. Brian was 33, a U.S. Pacific Fleet Integrated Undersea Surveillance Systems Officer. That's a mouthful. He was off duty on a closed circuit rebreather training dive in Honolulu when he died. Brian obviously had good in water confidence. He was quick to pick up the techniques of conventional scuba. But within two years, it moved to CCR training and training to use CCR with helium in the gas mix. And that's pretty much about as, as advanced as you can get. But his diving career is and was a litany of training mistakes. For example, he and his wife Ashley were allowed to dive in COTs, and that's uh, the sinkholes in the Yucatan Peninsula, without a clear route to the surface while still just a certified open water diver. Not cavern, not cave, no additional training. Now, they got away with that, with all the risk, without ill effects. This goes back to some of the stories we've been talking about. Well, you break a rule, but you get away with it, so the next time, well, I can hedge again. So his confidence in his scuba abilities really blossomed. It appears he became the victim of casual CCR instruction applied to peer pressure, and we've also talked about that. It is believed that he moved to mixed gas CCR too quickly and the quality of instruction he was given was too casual. The outcome was for him to simply step off the dive boat, enter the water without his oxygen cylinder turned on. Unlike open circuit scuba where if your tank is not turned on, you soon realize you got a problem because you can't breathe. A CCR can allow you to breathe a hypoxic mix Within seconds, he had used what little oxygen he had in the system, and the effect was the same as a bullet in the brain. When the brain locks up, you don't breathe. Now, not many CC divers will insist that that can't happen to them, because most of them are, are smart enough to know that. There are warnings, both visual and oral audio, that trigger that in a CCR unit if the partial pressure of oxygen in the breathing loop is either too high or too low. But Brian, it appears, was not aware of them. A new mixed gas CCR diver, he was too distracted. Who was monitoring what he was doing? And where was his instructor at this time? As what some call a, a pioneer CCR diver, and this is from another source who's talking about this issue, uh, they started CCR diving in 1993. 
He says, I was always aware that my CCR unit could kill me. This led to a culture of checklist and double checking and doing the same for my buddy. We learned quickly how important it was to always know the partial pressure of oxygen in the gas I was breathing from the CCR unit. Again, what we've always talked about the last couple of weeks. Do you have a checklist? Do you have a buddy list? Do you guys check what you do before you go in? And do you debrief afterwards? Everything we've been talking about for the last three weeks. Now, technical diving guru Rob Palmer advised me, get it wrong and you're dead. Good advice that I never forgot. However, it did not stop me from writing numerous magazine articles extolling the advantages of CCR diving. Because CCRs have become quite common on most dives, especially deep dives. We do not go diving because we're fighting a war. We're doing it for fun. The tragedy of Brian Bungie is that his death should never have happened. I suspect that many other CCR diving depths should not have happened either. You can see the whole story, tragic story of Brian, unraveled by watching the documentary, If Only Bravely, contributed by his wife, Ashley. In it, producer Garth Locke, a high-risk and human error expert, contend that you can get away with errors 95% of the time. 95%. He says Brian made a number of the mistakes on that May 20th, 2018 dive, and a couple of them were critical. But there were also many other factors in place, including distractions and incomplete or inadequate training. There's no difference from many other divers too. However, to focus on the fact that he didn't turn on his oxygen valve misses a huge amount of learning that is available. And looking at this, when the individual helped write this, they were talking about, I take some issue with the product in this point, failing to open your oxygen tank on a CCR and becoming hypoxic in an area you can never ever make and get away with it. Get it wrong and you're dead. And they also suggest watching the documentary, which I will put on the site in a minute. Uh, documentary is quite good. Note, certainly the failure to turn on the OT was the, on the O2 valve was the error that most immediately related to Brian's death. What the producer was saying in this and, and the video is that one should not focus exclusively on that, though that was the paramount. There are several contributory factors which happened frequently enough in diving and not just CCR diving. Excuse me. So I will post that video. But then after I read these articles, I went through some of the comments. Absolutely none of them disagreed. Uh, a couple of them I really liked. It said, I learned the importance of taking personal responsibility for my diving practice when working in hyperbaric medicine. And over the years, have since seen too many examples where certification was awarded to persons not competent in the sport. They like to compare that with the case of Skiles where he had an amazing number of opportunities to stop what he was doing. It's called error cascade prior to a fatal dive. And Wesley, I don't know if you remember Wesley Skiles. He was a mm -hmm. pioneering cave diver, acclaimed underwater photographer, cinematographer. And I actually recovered this several years ago. Yeah. In uh, 2010, he was diving near Palm Beach, Florida. Now, the cause of Skiles' death is officially accidental drowning, but what caused the expert diver to drown? The comments I found out, it said, 
After the accident happened, the diver who owned the rebreather he was wearing when he died sent it back to the company to be refurbished after the medical examiner had just returned from having just looked at it. He claims that the dive right company during their refurbishment replaced every part in question, effectively destroying evidence left behind, which oh. could have shown the rebreather was in fact faulty. After such, quality control issues with the O2 PTIMA FX rebreather of surface and a lot of batches of oxygen sensors from analytical industries have been recalled due, due to being defective. It remains to be seen whether this talented, dedicated individual lost his life to equipment failure or a simple accident. And uh, the last comment the guy had on this was, um, John referred to the OC diving course as fun, and I have no problem with that. Learning something should be fun. I do, however, have a problem with instructors who never seem to instill this to the students how dangerous being underwater with just a tanker air to support you is. I can understand the commercial aspect of keeping the dangers low key. After all, if you're selling something, you really don't want to remind your client that what he is buying can kill him or her. But at the same time, reminding students of the fact should be incumbent upon the instructor. I've always taken diving very seriously. Probably learning from the North Sea helped a lot. But over the years, I've seen so many who just regard it as a, another sporting activity among the many they pursue and not necessarily be taken very seriously. Dangerous perspective. So, kind, of kind of back on that rebreather, was there anything that if the oxygen had been turned on that the fatality wouldn't have happened? Well, if, if it had been turned on, you mean? Yes. Well, it shouldn't have happened, and then you'd have you wouldn't be breathing right. a non-mix, and then yeah. it immediately bonked out. And I passed uh, pasted the uh, the video for that in the yeah. uh, chat okay. room. Yeah. But my point on some of this is everything we've been talking about the last three weeks, elements of that showed up in this and Skyle's accident. You stretch what you know. Sometimes it's what you don't know. Checklist, buddy checks. I mean, we how often do we say before you get off that boat, make sure your air is on, make sure you did your breath on the BC, make sure you inflated the BC, that proves you got air. So if you went in, you're too much weight, at least you can put the BC on. Everything we've been preaching can help save your life. Yep, good points. You want to give yourself as much opportunity to live. Let other people make the mistakes and learn from them. Yeah. Yeah. If one breath, if one breath can do you in, you got no options. Yeah. Well, just kind of going back to the, you know, the oxygen on or off. It's, you know, when when we're designing systems that have to be critical, you always want to look at testing and you know, not relying on any single point of failure. And you want something that's monitoring the thing that's monitoring the thing that keeps you alive. You want to have all that. So, uh, but again, uh, though, what what keeps you from walking off the back of the boat in deep water, overweighted, and didn't have your air on? We've you, read about how many people. Hopefully, 
because we, we, we really try to preach to people. Breathe, look at your gauge, a couple of big deep breaths to make sure it works. Puff on your BC to make sure you got it. You got those two things when you get in the water, you got a chance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that's the thing. It's you, you've got to be your, your best friend on that. You have to, yeah. to do all the checks and the checklists and uh, prepare for it. Pre- prepare to live. Yeah. <laughs> Staying alive, staying alive. Staying alive, yeah. So, words of wisdom for the night. Yeah, very good. Well, I think we have just about done another one. We got another one done here. And uh, let me see. I think I've got a joke all lined up for us, if I can find the window that I had it in. One of these, maybe. Maybe. I don't know. That's not the one. (laughs) As I'm stalling here. Nope, that's not it. This all all gets edited out. You don't have to worry about it. (laughs) That's what I tell myself. Oh, crud. That was not what I wanted to do. What did you do? I did. I, I I think I closed the window out that had the joke on it. <laughs> I, I meant to close one and it closed them all. So, but I, I think I've got it now. Are you ready? Yes. So several men were in a locker room at a gym when a cell phone rang in the bench and a man put it on speakerphone and begins to talk. Everyone in the room stopped to listen. Hello, said the man. Hi, honey, it's me. Are you at the club? Yes, he says. Well, I'm at the shop now, and I found this beautiful leather coat. It's only $2,000. Is it okay if I buy it? Oh, sure. Go ahead, if you like it that much. Oh, I also stopped by the Lexus dealer, and I saw the new model, and I saw one I really liked. Well, well, how much was it? Oh, $90,000. He said, okay, but for that price, I want it with all the options. Oh, great. And one more thing. I was just talking to Janie, and she found out a house I wanted uh, last year's back in the market. They're asking $980,000 for it. The man said, well, go ahead and make an offer for $900,000. they will probably take it. If not, we can go the extra $80,000 if that's what you really want. Okay, I'll see you much later. Love you so much. Bye, I love you too. The man hung up and the other men in the room were staring at him in astonishment. Mouths wide open. He turned and asked, anyone know whose phone this is? (laughs) Oh, shoot. (laughs) <laughs> Oops. Yeah. I got just a quickie for you. Yeah. Why can't Bill Clinton go scuba diving? I don't know why. He won't inhale. Ah. Then Did there's you... second part says, why can Obama go scuba diving? I don't know why. He does inhale. Ah. See, these, these are jokes from what, what, how how many years ago elections were these? Is it, is it after eight or ten years they don't, they don't count as political jokes anymore? Well, I'm just like this other one. One time I was out scuba diving when I suddenly heard beautiful voices singing in unison. I was very surprised until I looked beneath me and realized it was coming from a coral reef. Oh, goodness. Okay, I'm not... <laughs> to make up for the first two yeah on that note go out there and get wet and stay safe
had a girlfriend that went scuba diving once. Uh huh. One day I lobster and never flounder <laughs> again. <laughs> I think it's time for Craig to leave. <laughs>